This episode of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you in partnership with the independent, family-run butcher, H.G. Walter. Now, I'm particularly excited about this because for over 10 years, I have been a customer of H.G. Walter for both my cooking jobs and also for at home too. They are one of the most respected butchers in the UK, supplying some of the best chefs and restaurants in the country. So it's quite cool to know that you are getting restaurant quality meat at home. And I know I've said this a million times before, but if you start with good ingredients, your life as a cook is so much easier. You barely have to do anything for it to taste delicious. And we know that good quality meat is more important than ever. If you're anything like me, you are thinking more and more about the provenance of the food you eat. And so having a butcher you can trust like H.G. Walter is just a very comforting thing. Also, never underestimate the knowledge of a butcher. If you don't know how to cook something, ask when you're in there. They know so much. They can advise about cooking times, the weight you need, and they'll always have delicious ideas for how they like to serve something. I found this kind of information absolutely invaluable when I was starting out as a chef. So I am thrilled to be telling you all about HG Walter today. They're based in London, but they deliver nationwide. And you can find out more at www.hgwalter.com. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven desert island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, I hope you're all very well. Now, I know I told you that this was just going to be a short little season for the month of February, but already we've come to the end and it's gone very quickly. So fear not, we are already recording the next, so hopefully it won't be too long to wait. I went to Sri Lanka last year for the very first time and completely fell in love. I've been to Hoppers many times. I kind of knew what to expect in terms of the food, but honestly, it's just the most amazing country with the most incredibly delicious food. So it really was brilliant to hear from Curran about his love for it too and how he turned that love and admiration into a concept for one of the most successful restaurant groups in London. Before I leave you with today's episode, this is just a gentle reminder to anyone listening. If you haven't yet subscribed to my newsletter, Dinner Tonight, please do think about it. It's one easy weeknight recipe, often one pan, mostly 30 minutes or less, And I genuinely look forward to writing it so much every week. It's just incredible that there are so many people reading it. There are now over 22,000 of you, which is just amazing. But there is always room for more. (laughs) Anyway, I do hope you enjoyed today's episode and thank you so much for listening. My guest today is Karin Gokhani. Karin is the founder and creative director of the restaurant group Hoppers, which celebrates the food of Sri Lanka and southern India. He grew up in Mumbai, where his love of home-cooked Indian food started at a very young age, and his enthusiasm for food never wavered as he ultimately gave up his career in law to pursue his passion. But we all know that a passion for food doesn't necessarily mean someone is suited to a career as a professional chef and the confines of the kitchen, and Karin spent time in restaurants both in the kitchen and front of house before ultimately 
ultimately opening his own restaurant, the famous Hopper's. Hopper's celebrates the incredible food of Sri Lanka, a cuisine that Londoners knew much less about in 2015, and they now have three Hopper's restaurants, and he's topped the Sunday Times bestseller list with his cookbook. Welcome, Curran. Thank you for having me here, Margie. <laughs> I, like we were saying earlier, I think um, I've got a very privileged bottom sitting on this chair, which has recorded so many more illustrious, illustrious people, you know, ranging from every sort of background. And I love your podcast. Love what you do. That's so nice. I've binged on it in the last two days <laughs> just to give myself some. No, answers. I'm honoured to have very you nervous. on. No, <laughs> no, I'm not. Please don't. I'm, not. <laughs> I'm just joking. Nervous about a couple of questions, which okay. I might try and dodge. Yeah, some of them are tricky. <laughs> no, I'm delighted to have you on Desert Island Dishes, and. As you all know, at the end, we are going to feed you something delicious and then send you off to a desert island. How oh, do you feel wow. about that? I mean, on a day like today, anything <laughs> that has sun would be fantastic. I've been soaked twice cycling around London. Yeah. Eventually ditched my cycle, borrowed my manager's umbrella, came walking over. Still got wet, soggy socks. Yeah. <laughs> so any desert, beautiful. anywhere in the world, island, no island, very happy to go there. Are you good in your own company? No, I don't think so. Okay, so you'll be trying to get I'm off not. the island. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Or I'll find something to cook on it. Yes. I'll start foraging. And and you have become synonymous with the food of Sri Lanka, but you grew up in Mumbai, which we'll talk about in a moment. Mm -hmm. How would you describe in a few words Sri Lankan cuisine? What defines it for you? Uh, I mean, I think when I when I train my team, and we've got a lot of people who've never you know heard of Sri Lanka when they join the team, the first thing I say, when you think of an island, what do you think of first? So it's palm trees, fish. And then you add curry leaves to it. You add a ton of spices. For me, Sri Lanka was um, only this tiny little cricketing island off the coast of India when I grew up. But then I made my first friends at university and it was amazing. It blew me away. The people, the diversity of the island and obviously the food. Mm. But I actually think the food came third. I fell in love with the people first and yeah. how much you can do in this wonderful place and just how welcomed I felt then Obviously, today that's grown exponentially mm. and just felt we needed to do something. So well before the restaurants were even conceived, I proposed to my now wife there. And, um, oh, wow, and then, that's amazing. You know, I didn't um, know that. Yeah, so there is some sort of, I always joke, there's a cosmic connection with the country. Mm. I've got more friends in Colombo today than I have in any city in the world, despite never having lived there. Wow. But now to answer your question, the food, <laughs> it's... Um, it is also very varied. In the north, you've got the influences of South India, Tamil Nadu, Tamil influences, but still done differently. So heavy on spice, uh, not as much coconut as the south. And then um, you go down south, I find that it's very similar to food from Kerala, which is the southern west coast of India. Mm. Um, but with influences from East Asia, which I love. So, you know, Malaysian influences, um, things like pandan leaves, lemongrass in food, along those beautiful aromatics, along with stuff that we are quite, you know, well versed with in India. So yeah. I felt it was this, it was familiar, but yet so different. And then you have, you know, Dutch burger food, which is almost like the Anglo-Indian food in India, but you've got the sort of Dutch influence with local Sri Lankans. You have a dish called lump rice, which is just unbelievable. So um, do you remember the first you know, time you went to Sri Lanka? I remember very clearly the first yeah. time I went to Sri Lanka. How old were you? Uh, it wasn't that long ago. It must have been about 15, 16 years ago now. 16 years ago. Yeah, it was just after the war. Mm. Uh, I went, I'd made my first very close Sri Lankan friends at university. Of Actually, only at that point Sri Lankan friends at university. Went to visit all of them in summer between sort of university and starting a job here in London, a job as a lawyer. And um, the irony of it was we had this whole trip around the island planned. It was so hot when we got there. Cancelled all of it and oh, just no. stayed at home at my friend's house and cooked with her mother 
for the entire week. Sri Lanka more than anywhere else, when you talk about it, people do mention the people. It's always the food and it's, it's always phenomenal. the people. Yeah, isn't yeah, they're, it? Just, yeah. they're just such... You know, for me, it's just one small test. As a non-Sri Lankan, I um, you know, came out and we just wanted to have fun. Mm. We wanted to bring to central London a cuisine that we missed. Mm. So that's a very fundamental thing to what you know we do in the family. My wife and her brothers have a group of restaurants. I plugged into them to open hoppers. And I'd say, I'd go as far as saying, even with the other restaurants in the group, it's just one clear motive. It's not trying to fill a gap in the market or thinking of it too commercially. It is, obviously that's important, but it's very much... What's a cuisine we feel is missing? We would go out to eat every night and mm. we find lacking in London. And Sri Lankan and South Indian, I always use the two in the same yeah. breath because we have a lot of South Indian food. Majority of my team is from Kerala and Tamil Nadu. So there's a lot of that food as well. We just miss that. Mm. And we brought them together. They work beautifully well together. And um, I can't think of any other country in the world where you'd be welcomed, cheered, and honored for representing them. Sri Lankans have been so generous in, in accepting me, helping, uh, you know, push hoppers forward. I feel so blessed every time I go to Sri Lanka and make more and more friends. So, yeah, that, yeah. And, you know, for me, that's become a big why of what I do today. Sort of, for me, it's not about just creating restaurants and feeding people. It's about how many restaurateurs can really say you fly the flag for a country. Yeah, and amazing. I think we've started doing that to an extent. Okay, let's dive into the first desert island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. It's got to be a dish I still eat almost every day, a dosa. Oh. Have you eaten a dosa? Yes. Yeah. So, so for those who haven't, it's a lentil and rice um, sort of pancake, for want of a better term. Very, very thin, crispy crepe. You ferment the two. They get a lot of slightly sour, bubbly. You grind them with some fenugreek seeds. Um, and then you make it into a really thin batter. You allow that to sort of bubble up a little bit. There's no yeast, no leavening agent. Um, and then with the back of a bowl, you put it onto a hot uh, plancher with a little bit of ghee or butter, and then it just sizzles, and you get it as thin as possible, rolling this is, you know, like swirling that bowl as quickly as possible, and then you kind of roll it up, and it's crispy. Sometimes I, I love a chili cheese version. It's a little bit of cheddar, mozzarella, uh, body powder, green chilies. Is that and how then, you would have had it? Uh, no, up. so as a kid, we just it's so funny because, you know, although you're away in Bombay, which is technically the West, mm. you have so many influences from all over the country. So it's, I think, the biggest melting pot in India. Mm. And um, I mean, there's this culture amongst you know, friends and a lot of people, families in Bombay where Sunday is dosa day. So it's sort of, you have batter, which either you make at home or you can buy now very easily, or you have in the freezers, it freezes really well. And you make it and um, you just, you're literally, there's this, uh, you know, most people have a cook at home or it might be a mother or father or someone making it. And you just roll these out and you have little chutneys on the side or sambar and then you have a potato stuffing in the middle. So there it's eaten quite simply. But as a kid, I remember we did sort of freestyle a little bit, go and add cheese. And oh. stuff to it. And obviously now that we've grown up, green chilies and everything is great. So mm. so there's something about that. Yeah. You say that your passion for food began at a very early age and that you were often to be found in the kitchen with your family's mm. cook rolling chapatis. Yeah, yeah. Of that time, you say that you really enjoyed the process of getting your hands dirty. But I wondered, were you a voracious eater? Like, was it about the food or was it about the cooking? I, I'm glad you asked that. So I was just on a panel the other day and there were a few questions. We were talking about a new food film that's just come out. And for me, I've sat on so many panels or like done interviews where I ask a chef a simple question. I said, if there was a dish, 
would you rather eat it or cook it? I think a lot of people stumble and think it's like oh, I'm not sure actually it depends on the dish and this and that. For me it was a very very clear answer always I'd rather cook it. Oh, I'd rather cook it 100%. No, no, no. I would 100% Eating eat for it. me is sometimes sort of a, a reverse engineering process mm. and I love that whole kinesthetic thing of bringing ingredients together and creating something brand new and then often seeing the joy on someone's face. I've just actually had a meeting with someone which I do almost three times a week. I don't have an office, so I sit at one of the restaurants, call people and put them on the spot, make them eat a full meal. I, I love watching people eat. And people tend to start feeling awkward. They're like, no, aren't you eating? I said, no, no, no. I'll, I'll happily watch you, especially at my restaurant. I'll happily watch you eat because your eyes don't lie. If you like something. Yeah. And I'll make sure I feed them something they will like. That's so interesting. So, so it has always been about So I think it was always that kinesthetic thing about like creating things, whether it was craft, whether it's sort of, you know, dabbling with, with paint or clay or... Because I was going to ask that. Obviously, cooking sparks creativity and it's this artistic expression. But then obviously you went on to become a lawyer and lawyers yeah. are very analytical and probably in danger of insulting all lawyers. But I wondered whether that's typical of a lawyer to be creative in that way and artistic. I don't know. I don't want to speak for all lawyers. Yeah. I think there were a lot of creative <laughs> people around um, in a different way. Yeah. But it's definitely the different side of brain that sort of gets you more mm. um, Although I guess it's with what you do more th wrote. there's a connection between music and maths, isn't there? So maybe actually, yeah. you know, obviously yeah, yeah, yeah. music's yeah. very artistic. So yeah. maybe that, maybe I've answered my own question there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think there were a lot of creative people. I was just fortunate enough to find my exit at the right time mm. or like to actually walk out the door at the right time rather than finding an exit. There's always an exit. Yeah. Um, but more importantly, walking out without really thinking too much about that safety blanket. So mm -hmm. really throwing myself at this. And also very fortunate to be surrounded by the right people, whether it's my wife and her family or my parents who are very supportive or all the people who've sort of embraced me. Let's talk about the second desert island dish. And that's the first dish that you learned to cook. Well, it was the first dish. Um, I, I'd be lying if I made one up. But I did roll a lot of chapatis, which yeah. are those sort of balloony kind of breads, which I still love and still get nervous cooking because there's no guarantee that turn out right. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, okay. as, as many bread series as I've done on Instagram, as much as bread as I've cooked, there's still that little bit of anxiety when doing it. Okay. <laughs> I'd never do it on live TV. So Saturday Kitchen, I wouldn't do this. Okay. <laughs> I wouldn't oh, do that as a Saturday Kitchen dish. But um, it was funny. My aunt, at that point, my mom's sister had gone off to, uh, had actually come to London and done a course over summer at the Cordon Bleu. Mm. And that time, that was a big thing. This is back in the 90s, and I must have been all of five years old or something. And everyone was very enamored by you know, all the cakes and things she cooked when she came back, and meringues and macarons and stuff like that. And she very, I think, maybe to keep us out of her kitchen, went and brought us a little series of ladybird books. It's a little sort of hardback, typical sort of yeah. old school ladybird books. And I've actually still got a couple of them. They're actually very good. But those were, there were five of them. And it just made England, I'd never been to England then, just made England seem like this unbelievable place where children just sit and cook. And I, <laughs> I was sitting in here like, you know, again, there was a bit of, uh, you know, my family has been very supportive. But back in the day, it's always been a little bit like, you know, males don't necessarily enter the kitchen. And now that's changed hugely. And there's has another it? story in my life. Domest domestically has that changed? Uh, yeah, I think it's, it's cooking has become very sexy all over the world. Mm. And I think, you know, you have programs like MasterChef and others to thank for that. 
uh, the whole competitive TV of cooking. But yeah. back in the day, there was a little thing. But more than that, I just make a mess. Yeah. So <laughs> there were these books, and I remember recipes for like fruit fools, and it just sounded like, what the hell is all this? And the best bit is, you know, you had things like plain flour, <laughs> ba- you know, bread flour, plain flour, baking powder, baking in India, you had none of that. So finally, I think I must have found like one recipe. It was probably a fool, which was just cream and a fruit and a little bit of sugar and I would and, and egg whites or something. And I just go and make that every day in the afternoon because I had access to them. There was no cooking. So the minute everyone would go off for their siesta in the afternoon, slip in the kitchen, make a complete mess with egg whites at like <laughs> the age of six or seven or whatever, six maybe. And then I'd hate eating any of that because it'll just be like flopped egg whites blended with some fruit or something. So that, that was probably the first thing I made. Yeah. Did you ever do that test where you put the bowl over your head to see whether the egg whites are No, fortunately, there wasn't a step in the book, but it would have gone horribly that was wrong. A lucky escape. <laughs> so I read that you spent your summer holidays when you were studying law in Mumbai, working in hotel kitchens, and you actually realized quite quickly that you didn't want to be in the kitchen itself. And you say that that was because it didn't suit your personality. What did you mean about that specifically? I loved the food. I loved the creative process. For me, that's still the starting point of everything. And, you know, I have so much respect for chefs who can go in and do it day in and day out. But at that point, I didn't realize, but I kind of just felt I wanted to do more than be in a kitchen because I love people. Mm. And I love that interaction both with the front of house, with guests, with um, networking. I I don't even call it networking. I was like making friends. Yes. Making friends (laughs) and, and, you know, doing bigger things. I know you've talked about the expectation that your parents had for you to do maybe something traditional mm-hmm. and stable. I know mm-hmm. your father and brother are both doctors. Mm-hmm. Did you know you... a lot. Gosh, wait. <laughs> I'm scared now. No. <laughs> Slowly unraveling. Yeah. <laughs> but did you ever think that you would eventually do something creative or did you feel like you did have to do something traditional? I think I did both in the end. Mm. I, I followed that traditional path and, you know, that was the more sort of... I'd say discipline me going off and saying, okay, fine. Because of the expectation. And I guess the culture I grew up in. Yeah. Unless you had a business to fall back on, unless you had this thing, you wouldn't necessarily get entrepreneurial. Today, things are different, you know, 20 years on. But when I was in school, it was very much like, okay, fine, what are you doing next? Like aged 18, if you'd said to your parents, I think I want to do something in the world of food, how would that have gone down? Dad is great. He's always been very rational. Um... He has always been very supportive, but I guess his, his advice would have been the same as it was at age 25, 26, when I, when I actually made the career shift, 27. That, look, do it. I'll support it you all heartily, but make sure you are completely sure you want to do it and there's no turning back from here. Yeah. Um, and, and is that advice now that you'd give your children? Yeah, I'd support them in doing whatever they like to do. Uh, you know, obviously you want to make sure that they've... Uh, sort of assessed their options and looked around before making. And I think I, the the one advice I give to anyone is that in those years when you have those long university breaks, if people are still going to university in the next sort of 10 yeah. years, who knows? But like if you've got those long summers, just go off and make a completely crazy wish list of alternative careers you could be in. And honestly, uh, make that list. And the one thing you have is time. And, you know, people often get scared. They're like, oh, why would someone hire me? I was like, if you go to someone and say, I will volunteer my time, very likely no one's going to say no to you. And in future, five years from now, when you're hating a job, hopefully not, but when you're hating <laughs> a job, it might just come to the front. And, and it'll give you a real, real world perspective rather than just through 
a TV show or a film. Yeah. And I think that's what happened to me. It's sort of, I did this, banked it and said, okay, fine. I actually feel I'm on the right track. I continued low. And then it was only 10 years later, one day that I kind of brought those memories back. I said, I loved those things about it. How do I make a career of it? Mm. I know you've been dreading this question, but we're on to the third desert island dish. What's the best dish you've ever eaten? As someone in food, it's just such a hard question to, it's like asking me about my kids. Uh, Which (laughs) Which one is is my favorite? favorite? (laughs) No, but Um, honestly, which one I mean, every morning there's one. There's definitely one every morning. I know, parents definitely lie when they say that, don't they? I'm going to be greedy and I'm not going to say a dish, but I'm going to say an experience. Mm. There's a restaurant in Bombay called Takar Bojnalia, which I used to go to as a like, you know, when I was a lot younger as well, now it's become quite cool. They do something known as a thali. A thali is basically, it translates as a big plate. And then you have tiny little bowls. It's all vegetarian. It's from the western part of India, so Gujarat and Rajasthan. And they, it's just unlimited. So you spend, it's about six quid and all you can eat. Every day you'll have about, there's at least about 18 dishes in there. So I've kind of twisted that question. It's not one (laughs) dish, but for me, that experience, the hospitality, you have a whole army of people coming in with buckets, like little buckets and feeding you and topping you up. So when you're done, you've literally got to stick your head down (laughs) on that plate and even then you run the risk of someone pouring, topping your head up with something. <laughs> and then you get carried Because you've out. just got to say, no, you've got to lie down on top of the plate because if you leave a gap, they will find a way to top you up. <laughs> and it is honestly, like, it's something that you can't, you don't, um, it's, it's everything. It's hospitality, it's family cooking, it's family eating together. For me, that, that place is encapsulates everything hospitality food should be about. Mm, but yeah, like- for me, a thali at Takar Bojnale is probably my, my dream dream meal maybe not a dish that sounds like my kind of place and that you grew up vegetarian didn't you yeah i mean i'd sneak we'd sneak meat into the house whenever you could we'd sneak fish in from the neighbor's home okay whenever we could what you and your siblings so it was your parents my younger brother my parents were complicit in it okay it was more my grandparents who were sort of my grandmother who lived with us sometimes she wasn't too keen on it and then i think they had this thing of we don't want to cook in the house so when you smell fried fish next door, I'd sneak off and get a piece. So those are also great, you know, very, very strong memories of yeah. those the smells of fried fish with masala, pomfret, oh, great smells. Yeah, yeah, so good. You came to university to study law at Cambridge. Had you been to the UK many times before then? No, I'd been once. Wow. Been once on a family holiday. Wow. And had my cousin and aunts take us up to Oxford. So never even seen Cambridge. Wow. And, uh, you know, show us this, this amazing... Uh, university and and then I started doing university in, uh, in Mumbai. I keep saying Bombay. It's not political at all. It's just that's the city I grew up in. So I um, yeah we did. I did my first degree there, and then very quickly realized I feel there's more. I could do something better. I could do it. You know, go to a better university, even just purely for the academics. Okay. Um, what, and how did you find coming to Britain for the first time? Well, I loved coming here. I loved the freedom. I loved the supermarkets. We never had, even till today, in, like, you know, Mumbai doesn't have supermarkets like you have over here on every corner. Like, you've got to, if you want to plan a dinner party back home, you've got to plan a day in advance. You've got to have a fishmonger separately. You've got to go off to a supermarket and get certain things. And you go to a dry store and get certain things. It's not that easy. Mm-hmm. And there's traffic to, you know, account for as well. Whereas here, if I decided at 9 a.m. I want to cook for friends off to the local Tesco, Waitrose, Sainsbury's, whatever it might or even corner shop. Yeah. And then come back. Hell, I've gone to a Turkish store at 3 a.m. on Christmas Eve and managed to buy everything I need for Christmas Day. So, yeah, you know, that's that's the amazing thing about UK. When I was in Cambridge, I loved that. I actually started cooking meat there. 
Okay. At uni, I, I, I definitely cooked much more than I studied. Yes. Or, or spent time in any classroom <laughs> or at my desk at, in my room. Because I read about that. You were doing so much cooking. But I, I wondered in terms of the food that you were eating out or other people's food. Just like, wasn't. Oh, you just, weren't. Okay. Literally cooking. I, and I had seven other boys to blame, blame for the mess. We were eight of us in this little dorm, big kitchen. I'd negotiated fridge space with everyone. We almost had like a tiny little fridge and it was one third a shelf for everyone. And my favorite times of the week or month were going out grocery shopping, having sort of six massive shopping bags hung around my handlebar, sort of balancing back from <laughs> Mill, uh, Mill Road, which was where all the Asian stop shops were. I remember my best friend at uni, he came to me on Diwali, which is like our New Year's. Mm. And he came to me, uh, he's a very British horse. He's like, oh, Karen, I've got, I've got a great surprise for you. I said, yeah, what is it? He's like, I will take you to the big Tesco today as a celebration <laughs> for Diwali. But I, you only have one hour. Because he knew I'd just go nuts. And I still, I think I just got lost on purpose and spent about two hours shopping. And then came back and negotiated with everyone on fruit space. I, I feel like with British food, it is quite nuanced in a way. And there are dishes that seem very normal if you've grown up with them. But were there any surprises coming to England like in your early 20s were you confronted by anything that oh, yeah. you thought was really strange so I think um, I had to be saying very politely now that I've sort of lived here and <laughs> acquired some of the traits um, it was quite bland mm. <laughs> or, or sort of lacking spice I'd say the bland is not polite yeah. enough um, to begin with whole food wasn't the best representative of um, British food but there was a turning point there was this really interesting point so Three years, I'd go back to India to see family every time I could in every break. But then there was um, this one year, the same said friend invited me to his house for Christmas. Uh, his parents live in a lovely house in, uh, in Burford, in the Cotswolds, so mm. as idyllic as you can get. It's an old mill uh, in this little town and really beautiful. So the first time ever I'm in England over Christmas, in London over Christmas, he says, come, come home for Christmas. I said, okay, great. I said, quid pro quo, I'll happily do you an Indian meal for Boxing Day? They said, yeah, yeah, fantastic. We're not going to say no to that. No. Little did I know they're going to invite about okay. 20 people from the village as well. <laughs> Actually, not the first year. After that, subsequently, every time I did that, there were more and more people there, and I went prepared for that. But this year, it was just the immediate family. So I pitch up on Christmas Eve, having taken the train, and his dad comes to pick me up. And I go with one little plastic bag that big, apart from my clothes. His mom was very polite. She's like, uh, were you going to be cooking Boxing Day? <laughs> Indian for us. I said, yeah, yeah. I said, you haven't asked me to buy anything. I said, no, just go off in the morning and buy stuff. It's like, nothing is open oh, no. in this country. <laughs> oh, no. If you've not been here over Christmas, nothing is open. Fortunately, oh, no. I bagged the last free range organic chicken in the co-op, which was open. <laughs> uh, otherwise, they wouldn't have touched it. Oh, no. And ever since, I've sort of ordered all my meat in and everything in. But for me, that was a real revelation as to how um, Christmas, everything shuts down. Mm. But but the, the point of the story was on that Christmas day, I was just blown away by the sort of the, the excitement for a very simple meal. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, but you know, the traditional Christmas You're not meal. Wrong. Yeah. And, and what I love now being on the other side, sort of, you know, sometimes it's just about an excitement to put a meal on a table. Mm. And I love that. I just love that enthusiasm for a bird you won't touch the rest of the year. So, <laughs> and, and for me, that was. You know, quintessential. I said, food doesn't need to be complicated. Mm. It doesn't need to go over the top. Like we are so good at, you know, having 40 dishes in a menu and overfeeding people as Indians. So it can actually be fairly simple. And ever since yeah. I have been madly in love with the 
good solid roast dinner mm. um, oh, so or nice. roast lunch and here's the biggest irony my wife who is of indian origin grew up here yeah. absolutely hates it what no so way. she will find any excuse to escape the house when i'm cooking roast but i will still <laughs> try my hardest to invite the right people and enjoy it that brings uh, yeah. us on to the most important question yeah. of the day the fourth desert island dish what is your favorite sandwich it has been described as a sandwich in the past it's called a vada pav probably had it heard of it i don't think i have so growing up in bombay it's typical street food it's okay. a potato um sort of it's mash it's spiced potatoes you've got to mash them but not completely and then you spice them up with things like coriander and like mustard seeds and turmeric and ginger and garlic and everything else and lots of green chili and they roll them up into a bowl coat them in gram flour batter so chickpea batter is vegan um and then deep fry it Mm. and then you have a garlic chutney you have a fried chili and sometimes you have another sort of tamarind sweet tamarind chutney all in this little bun which looks a little bit like um a uh, a uh, sort of like a bread roll like a porterhouse roll but the soft somehow indians have mastered the art of creating what we call a pav mm. pav that's an interesting one as well because you sort of the 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 history is used to jump on it with your feet and foot in india is pav Oh, wow. or in that okay. language in maharashtra is pav so you used to jump on it with your feet a bit like you know crushing grapes stomping grapes and that's how it was made bulk uh, you know in bulk and it's the poor man's common man's bread so it's you see these guys in the evening bread sellers just selling soft it's like billowy the softest bread ever i don't know how they make it i've tried really hard i've gotten close but never made it and you they open that up uh, and literally stuff that freshly fried bun in uh, the the potato uh, dumpling inside and the vada with all the chutneys and you know that is one of the most popular iconic street food dishes in in mumbai that sounds so that would probably amazing. be my sandwich mm. if it wasn't a pret christmas sandwich oh, yeah. christmas yeah <laughs> which i but, also love but again when it first came out that pret sandwich was very good but i feel like it's gone downhill over the years yeah but again it's nostalgia it reminds me of that <laughs> christmas meal so i still love it but is I'm that not, one yeah. of the things that it's best to have it as a street food or is it something that you could also get in a nice restaurant or you have at someone's house i mean it's one of those things it's like all street food has been glamorized so mm. you do get it in restaurants you get it in restaurants here you get it in restaurants best to get there. It on you the go street. to wembley there are places that do it still the the pav is never as good as bombay okay where's so. the best place that you found in london uh what's it called i forget the name there is a place in wembley that does it Uh, it's just off the main strip uh shri krishna i'll okay. i'll find out when i was reading about your story it sort of seemed in a way like you're almost an oxymoron because you've described yourself as a very risk averse lawyer but then you're also very brave and entrepreneurial how do you think those two things marry together i've learned to listen to my gut a lot more mm. and i think um you know for those of you hopefully we'll have that side dish episode where I'll talk about one yes. of my dinner party guests and I've learned a lot from him so I'll leave you in suspense okay okay for <laughs> we love I'm we love a teaser yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> but do you think as you've gone along you've embraced risk more and do you think you have- 100% but I think it's still calculated risk okay it's a bit like you know getting into food which was a huge risk you know having left a very successful career or at least potentially successful mm. career behind but you've got to do it for the right reasons you've got to do it with your eyes wide open and um i still won't take speculative risks i always say i work for my luck 
Okay. I'm very unlucky. So I literally, the day I invested in in a little bit of Bitcoin, it was only okay. a few hundred quid. The whole market came crashing down. So I'm sorry if I brought your investments down. That was your down. fault. That was my fault. The day I got my British passport, the gate stopped working. So it's, it's oh, that's okay. that's how unlucky I can be. No, honestly, honestly. Would you um, describe yourself as an unlucky person? No, not at no. all. But I just think <laughs> free luck is not something I get. I work very hard mm. for my luck. And I think when you are lucky, you should make the most of it and benefit as many people around you as possible. Yeah. I like that. So that's something that, you know, I think people often dwell on what they've been unlucky about, but I feel in life it has a way of balancing out. You might work really hard for something and not get somewhere. Yeah. And then by dwelling on that, you might gloss over something that came sort of pretty easy. But yeah, if you focus on that and then you sort of maximize and amplify it and do as much good as you can. It's like for me, feeding people, you know, maybe having created this amazing platform with hoppers, uh, maybe, you know, talking about Indian food is great. And I think I want to try and sort of do as much good as out of it as I can, mm -hmm. whether it's for my team, whether it's for guests who come in, are connected back to a sort of heritage or cook my recipes off Instagram at home and, you know, actually answer them or create build schools in Sri Lanka, which is something we've started yes. recently. I think luck about, is, yeah. it's also down to perspective, isn't it? Mm. Like you can take the same situation and think you're very lucky. And then if you're a very negative person, you'll that, think it's, yeah. you know, but it's sort of how you I mean, but it. that said, there are some people who are just damn lucky. Well, I know that are. <laughs> there are some people there who are. just look at them like, true. where they <laughs> But uh, I wonder if I guess if you analyze their entire lives, it balances out somewhere. But, you know, yeah. I think it's better to just look at your own. We're on to the fifth desert island dish. What's the dish you eat the most often? This is not going to be a sexy answer, but at the moment, boiled eggs. Mm. Okay. <laughs> um, boiled eggs and rajma chawal. So rajma chawal is sort of, it's a very simple kidney beans to you with plain, simple rice, green chilies, cucumbers, tomato on the side, um, which is, I mean, apart from all the fancy cooking, I'm, this, this is more the sort of recurring themes. We have, um, my wife and I, when we you know, just want to sit in front of the telly, in each other's company and not have to bother about cooking. We've got a stash of these, you know, made up, made for two in the freezer, which I've bulk cooked, batch cooked and kept. And it's comfort food at its purest. Mm. Rajma Chawal. Do you think when opening a restaurant now, do you think the most important thing is passion? I think when doing anything, mm. passion is the most important thing. Yeah. Unless you're in a very structured job yeah right <laughs> Be really passionate but even then banking. to get even then to get to the pinnacles of you know today when i look back at my cohort of you know fellow lawyers it's only the people who we knew were secretly even if they'd mourn just to be part of the gang mm. it's the ones who were genuinely passionate about it in this weird sort of sadomasochistic way it's yeah. only those people who've like risen to the top yeah most have fallen by the wayside but the good thing is in you know professions in a lot of those sort of conventional professions whether it's law banking accountancy or things like that, or even even medicine to an extent, but I think medicine needs a lot more passion. But I think in some of those conventional sort of corporate professions, you could get away just doing 60% and not being, not feeling fully fulfilled. Yeah. But uh, I always say that's it's good to have people like that because otherwise, if everyone goes and starts creating things, who's going to consume? Well, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> we need everyone. We need people with, you know, deep pockets and, and boredom. Yeah. Uh, and uh, <laughs> people who, who want to be fed as opposed to cook. Mm. So yeah. it's nice. nice that's very true. Different and everybody's different. Exactly. The people of Sri Lanka have had a very difficult few years and hoppers have been doing the most amazing things to give back. You've been building schools and providing meals to children 
and I imagine you have a lot of emotions tied mm. to the country, mm. not only from everything that they're going through, but everything that they've given to you in a way. I think, um, you know, for me, it's I look at it less as giving back and I just look at it as full circle. Mm. It's like completing the loop. Yeah. Um, I feel I would never have found my identity if it wasn't for Sri Lanka. I already said I've got more friends there than anywhere else. And, you know, the way I've been uh, received, loved, um, cheered on has been incredible. So we were we were on holiday early 22 and um, in, in Sri Lanka at a lovely time with my boys uh, and wife and then came back. And soon after that, almost a month after that, they had this horrible political sort of uprising that then led to obviously social impact and uh, social massive had a horrible economic and social impact. And having grown up in a country where I saw poverty very closely, uh, the one thing I sort of loved about Sri Lanka is that you didn't have that poverty. There was a lot more, there was a very good base quality of life. Mm. Um, and um, you could almost see that in the years to come, that poverty will be something that becomes real with inflation at 400% and stuff. It was nuts. Um, so we came back and, you know, uh, everyone is posting things on social media saying, look, our hearts are out for you. Right? We are sitting here and not doing much. And I said, let's actually do something fun. Let's do something that makes an impact. Let's do something that actually creates uh, a little, you know, change on the ground. And we had done various charities in the past, but this time something in me said, like, we need to just do a proper project. And again, somehow things aligned and I ended up, in, in, within three days of thinking about this and talking to people about it, I ended up meeting the gentleman who happened to be on holiday. He's got a very large group of conglomerates, him and his family, but within that they've got an amazing outreach foundation which does all their... CSR. Um, within that, they've got three charities, and then we basically agreed to plug into one of the charities, which works with preschools. So uh, and f and you know, sort of education and food, less food but more education. So they plug into these preschools. They have about sixty-seven, sixty-six, or sixty-seven at last count. Wow. Um, and for me, that made a big difference. I, as it was very close to home because my kids were in preschool at that mm -hmm. point, and food was something so important. Education is the, the is the biggest gift you can give anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of these kids had stopped going to school because they were the children of daily wage earners who just lost their jobs overnight. And, you know, you could see that knock-on effect happening. But uh, long story short, we said we want to support with food. We want to support these kids with, with ration packs. We chose 15 schools from six districts so that there's no bias as to ethnicity as well because you've got different ethnicities mm -hmm. in different regions. So initially in 22, we did six schools, 15 schools, six districts, about 397 families. Wow. We fed for uh, from sort of June to the end of the year. These 20 kilo bags, we even went there later on in the year and distributed some of them. And it was amazing seeing the impact. So every penny that we raised here was going there. And come 23, we said, look, um, we don't want reliance on this because eventually, you know, they were getting out of that, that horrible the eye of the storm and things were mm. getting slightly better. Um, and then we said, okay, we've got excess funds. We will still continue doing this, but we'd rather now pick a thousand or I think it's 1,097 families um, who are the worst off across the entire network. So instead of going to three schools, now we have these families, maybe it's grown to like 1,300 families and give them protein rich packs. Mm. So give them things like dried fish, coconut milk powder, certain protein biscuits. So smaller packs, but more impact. Mm. And then with the excess funds, we decided let's build schools now. I went back to, I was in Sri Lanka about a month ago and we laid foundation for a second school. And next week, or actually beginning of, yeah, next 
week, beginning of March, we are laying foundation for third. So hopefully by the end of 24, we'll have four schools. And in a dream world, I'd like to build two schools a year after that. Wow, you must so, be so proud. Again, like I said earlier, you know, like I've been lucky to have this platform and all we're doing is, you know, doing what we love doing, cooking dishes, giving some of the money to charity. I do events and I give money to charity. On all my book sales to the restaurant, there's money going to charity. Plus our guests are kind enough to donate a pound on every bill, which is optional, but most of them do it. And that's obviously the biggest feeder, but I want to put my money where my mouth is. So there are various sources. Mm-hmm. And these are just things I love doing. So if we can do this much, you know, make this impact back there, uh, I don't think you need credit for it. The only reason I talk about it is because people are often nervous to send money to these places because they don't know where it goes. But this is a great uh, route to doing it. We've we've made sure it's 100% transparent, leak-free. Yeah. So please talk to us. <laughs> yeah. Incredible. Let's talk about the Sixth Desert Island dish. What's your go-to dinner party dish? At my house or someone yeah. else's house? <laughs> <laughs> Do you get a request if you're at uh, someone else's house? Well, I don't get invited much. And oh, I know a lot of your chefs have said this, but yeah. it's it's a, it's a one of those sort of yeah. hazards of the profession. You know, you invite people. My wife keeps saying you've overwhelmed them. That you'll never be invited. And it's true. <laughs> so anytime you meet friends who actually invite us back, those are friends for life. We make sure you're we so invest happy. a lot in them. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, we have a few of those. And they're not even in the trade, but they cook really, really well. Oh, yeah. And I look forward to it. So what do you serve um, if you're overwhelming so, these people? What, what are you uh, I've, I've kind of decided, no, so to avoid the overwhelming okay. people now, <laughs> I've gone to sort of, there are two go-tos I, wanna, I, I want to be overwhelmed when I go to a dinner party. I think dumb, that's a good dumb. thing. So, then, <laughs> so we used to have this format earlier before the kids where we'd have a Sunday afternoon. Mm, yeah. It was uh, this sort of dinner party, so lunch and dinner, three o'clock in the afternoon. It was crazy. Um, I would come back from Hopperso. We only had one then. Um, this is back in 2016 and 17. I still miss those those parties. Uh, come back at like midnight, one o'clock in the morning after the night cleaner's done. Uh, later, one one thirty in the morning. Wife would go to bed. I would go shower, get into track pants, and then go off to the Turkish store. Same one I went to on Christmas Eve. Yeah. Um, and then buy my groceries. I made a menu in my head. For me, that was unwinding and de-stress at the end of a week. I then come home and cook till four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning. Wow. Then I'd go to bed and wake up at 11, 30, 12. Yeah. I don't sleep much. Yeah, see, good luck um, doing that with children. And, and no, 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 there's, there's no way we're doing that now. But then we'd have guests over by three. So it was a dream because they'd come over at three and then they'd leave at midnight. I know, so they'd leave at sort of seven, eight in the evening. So nice. And you're not hungry after that. You've cleared up. Eight o'clock, you're in your couch and you're like, wow, done for the weekend. Don't have to think about dinner right now. Um, and, and those were great. And those were sort of almost sort of showing off and going off and cooking very fancy things. And those are the ones that overwhelm people. Yeah. Now it's, <laughs> I use, my go-tos are either pizza. I love cooking pizza at home because it's a bit like a barbecue. I've got a f- couple of pizza ovens kicking about at home. Um, That's a very cool sentence. A couple I, of pieces. Yeah, I know. I work around. with a couple. Of, I work with one company. Okay. and they're great. Uh, but um, I love pizza. I'm obsessed with it. It's so simple, but still so versatile. Yeah. What's your um, go-to topping? Pizza needs to be very simple. Three things, if that. Normally, a margarita yeah. is the best way to go. Mm-hmm. But green chilies and mushrooms, or red chilies, green chilies, mushrooms are my only toppings. I hate meat on pizzas. I don't oh, like do anything you? that sort of overcomplicates the, okay. the clean flavors of. 
cheese, tomato, and good bread. So good hope, bread is the most important hopefully thing. Hopefully you'll agree that pineapple is just wrong. Oh, no, no. Wrong. Yeah, it's not even me. It's very close <laughs> to no, pizza. But for me, pizza is a great one because it's a bit like a barbecue. You sort of fiddle around and often the kids involved. So they always come and you become favorite uncle and stuff for that, where, <laughs> um, which is great fun. I love cooking with kids. But the other one is if we're doing an adults only sort of evening dinner party, it's biryani. Mm. So again, one pot, you know what a biryani is, sort of layered meat and rice. Um, it's... All the effort goes into the one pot. It is the the dream and it's the the ultimate one pot meal. And maybe a dal on the side, definitely a salad and a raita. And, <laughs> you know, you open it on the table. Oh. It stays warm. You keep it in the oven while your guests are there. So you can actually enjoy with them. Sit down. If I really want to go all out, I might light a barbecue, do some kebabs before that. But again, you're sort of getting to the territory of feeding people too much. And <laughs> do you have a go-to pudding? Ice cream. Mm. I love ice cream. Yeah. Um, it's still one of those, it's so simple to make. And I'll yeah. tell you a trick. I was like, yeah. you can buy store-bought custard. Mm-hmm. Just mix it. You get good store-bought custard. Yeah. Mix it with some fruit puree, a little bit of gelatin if you want. Yeah. So it's very, very quick. You don't even have to make your custard base. But I do make my custard base. Yeah, that is a good thing. And then you either have one of those freeze freezer bowls. If you've got space in the freezer, I'm lucky enough to have one of those sort of electronic ones. So you don't even need to prepare for that. But I find ice cream always blows people away mm. and it's so tasty. You can keep leftovers. I eat ice cream all the time. On Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner. So mm. I'd love to know what is your most treasured cookbook? So I learned a lot of my cooking um, and I guess learned how to feed, eat and enjoy eating with uh, a man who we call Tatun. Mm. He was a um, grand uncle. So he was a bachelor for life and he would come home so I didn't have a paternal grandfather he passed away before I was born so this man was almost he played that role but you could never ask him to come home he never you know there was no no requesting him to turn up he would just turn up if he wanted to (laughs) but I remember the meals that he would cook for us were always spectacular he'd come with a bag of South Indian ingredients that we wouldn't normally find in stores so he'd go to the, the local wet market get some really interesting vegetables and spices and he would cook the best meals and I think shortly before he passed away he gave me his little South Indian cookbook, wow. which is like a little paperback, which, you know, was probably a, some home cook who wrote it years ago. But for me, that is my most treasured, yeah. treasured possession because he would he would only bring that one book. He had two, actually. I don't know where the second part is. He had part one, part two. It was called Cook and See, which I bet translates to something different. But it's an English book, Cook and See, and he'd bring that book along with his vegetables and he'd actually follow the recipes. Wow. That's it's got about 200 recipes have. in this 100 page softback book but for me that's just that if I was to lose all my books I'd still hold on to that yeah. one. Oh that's incredible. Just for sentimental value. We're on to the final seventh desert island dish. Yeah. What is the last dish you'd choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island? I think it would be sort of Peking duck. Ooh. Done in all its glory. Yes. Absolutely love good Peking duck and I remember when we opened Hopper's Soho before we got home at that 1.30 in the morning and then went off and cooked, we'd often, I think about four times a week, I'd be in Chinatown eating <gasps> eating duck so in different good. forms, whether it was sort of that the, the British aromatic crispy duck. But I like the traditional Peking duck. Mm. And that's another dish we do every year at Christmas. There's a sort of, there's a meal I always do. Um, at home, I get a goose 
and I try and cook a goose mm. uh, in that Peking duck style where the skin is served separately with pancakes and yeah. then you use the meat and stir fry it and then you stir fry a little bit of the rice. So, yeah. Is it easy to cook at home? Oh, no, it isn't. No, no okay. it isn't. But yeah. Once a year. <laughs> That's once a year. And yeah. every year, no matter how well I do, I'll always change it up and like make it hard for myself the following okay. year. Um, and do you have a sweet tooth? Are you going to have oh, a... Oh, massive, massive sweet tooth. Are you going to have a pudding before you go to the island? Pudding needs to have chocolate, apart from sort mm. of nice fruit ice creams and stuff like that. But eventually, so even if I go off and, you know, eat a dessert with tons of nice fruit and I have massive sweet tooth, um, I'll still like to end on chocolate. Okay. What's um, your go-to chocolate? I think a Ben & Jerry's chocolate fudge brownie. Brownie, very simple, but that's my guilty pleasure on the okay. sofa. Perfect. Love any ice cream with mix-ins. Yeah, um, that sounds But, good. you know, a good chocolate tart. Give me any chocolate in any okay. form. Maybe like on a, the darker a side, chocolate buffet. Sweet. Chocolate buffet is okay, perfect. perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we'll do. So where I sort of, I, I avoid two courses, we'll just put those two, we'll club those together perfect. as dessert. And with that, we're going to send you off to the desert island. Thank you so much. As long as it's much. sun, I'm very happy to go anywhere. <laughs> Want to ditch that umbrella? Yeah, we'll try and arrange that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. <laughs> so there we have it. Another delicious day of Desert Island dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you're listening. It really does make a difference and helps others to find the show and means that I can keep bringing it to you each week. If you don't already, then do come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes. And you can sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes at DesertIslandDishes.co. Thank you again to H.G. Walter, our sponsor for this month of Desert Island Dishes. And thank you so much for listening. Bye.